0: Here with us to worship today. I do want to make just a notion. Remember that we have multiple services, and it's kind of exciting with the Saturday night service at five o'clock or even the early Sunday morning service at nine. I know many of you take advantage of this. You can serve at one of the other services and then come worship still together. One of the great things, I think, you have the opportunity to invite people. You invite somebody from your neighborhood or somebody from work, and they have a previous commitment. You can say, Hey, well, if you can't go Sunday morning, why don't you come Saturday night? And you can come with them. So, We've been really, really thrilled with what God's been doing through the multiple services. Actually, leadership's really encouraged. Attendance overall is up about 15% since we started those multiple services. So continue praying for that. Be aware of that. I wanted to actually start our teaching today. We're going to take a little break from Pastor Dan's Write It On Your Heart series. He's on vacation this week. And we're going to go through a really, really tough passage in Scripture. And so I wanted to show a little movie clip and kind of get us ready for it, but we couldn't get the clip to work. And so I'm going to test that old adage a picture is worth a thousand words and I'm going to in a thousand words try to explain what we would have seen but it was a clip from the movie the sandlot maybe a lot of you've seen that movie great little baseball movie with kids and in the sandlot there's these nine boys and they get together and they play on the sandlot all the time they love baseball but occasionally they don't play baseball sometimes they go to the local swimming pool and these boys are all you know 11 12 years old or whatever and and they're kind of starting to notice girls and the object of their affection their attention At the swimming pool is a a lovely lifeguard. Her name is Wendy Peppercorn. Wendy's a couple years older than the guys. And and so in one of the scenes, the classic scene in the the movie, the boys are noticing Wendy, and and one of the kids comes up with this great idea to get her attention, to get to know her better. And so his name is Squintz, Michael Squintz Pallador. he has got these big, huge black glasses. And so Squints' idea is he's going to go, and he's going to stand on the diving board in the deep end and jump in, and he can't swim. And so his buddies know this about him, and so Squints goes to the diving board, and he stands on, and he waves, and he gets Wendy Peppercorn's attention, and he takes his glasses off, and he holds them, and he jumps in, and he sinks like a rock right to the bottom. (laughs) Well, his buddies are all worried about him because they know he can't swim. They're running around the pool. Wendy Peppercorn notices, and so she dives in, and she saves him, and she pulls him to the side of the pool, and she starts to administer mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. And so after she's, you know, given him the breath of life a couple, three times, you know, his buddies are like, oh, my gosh, Squint's look horrible. I'm afraid he's going to die. And so she comes up from, from giving the mouth to mouth, and Squint's looks over at his buddies, and he winks real big, and he smiles, and then he lays dead again. So Wendy goes down one more time, and he grabs the back of her head and kisses her passionately, and she freaks out. And she picks him up and drags him and throws him out of the pool. Throws him out, throws all his buddies out. They're kicked out of the pool forever. Not not just that day, not just that summer, forever. Well, as they're leaving, though, the whole Sandlot gang, they go by the outside fence, and Squint stops. And he looks in, and there's Wendy. She's back up on her lifeguard chair. And she does the coolest thing. She looks out at him, and she waves, and she smiles. She gives him a little head nod. I think, man, how incredible. What a neat thing. And you wonder, you know, what can we learn about the Bible (laughs) from something in a clip like that? And here's what I think it is. I think it's possible to appreciate the shrewdness of another person, even if you don't commend their actions. Amazingly, I think, even if you suffer from their actions like poor Wendy Peppercorn did. So with that backdrop, join me in your Bibles if you would. We're gonna look in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 16. And we're gonna camp out in verses one to thirteen today. And I'm gonna tell you, this is a tricky passage. This is maybe one of the most complicated parables, difficult teachings that Jesus offers, because it's a parable that creates a lot of tension. Some of the tension probably comes from the fact that it's talking about money, stewardship. And while that's a topic that Jesus talked about a whole lot, there are commentators, there are theologians, who will say probably fully 25% of what Jesus addresses in the Gospels is about stewardship and about the use of money. It's a clear winner in the clubhouse for the things he's talking about, but real honestly talk about money and stewardship in church and it does create a little bit of tension. But I think here in this passage, there's even more tension because we see something unusual. We see something kind of weird, kind of like Wendy Peppercorn waving at Squints after she threw him out of the pool. We see Jesus doing something that seems a little out of character for him. It appears like he praises an unrighteous guy. I mean, worse than that, even in the text, it's a crook. Now, if we're real careful with the text, we'll see that Jesus doesn't praise sinfulness. He doesn't praise dishonesty, doesn't praise unrighteousness but he does praise something that a dishonest guy does. Well, context to me is always the key in our understanding, our comprehension of Scripture. So let's take a couple minutes and see where this story fits in and give us a better big-picture understanding of God's Word because I don't think this is a standalone parable. Throughout the entirety of the Gospel of Luke, there's a lot of talk about money and possessions. So I don't think this parable is supposed to be the bottom line on this discussion. I think it's just a parable that has some really specific application points for us. In chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, tons of teaching from Jesus about money and material possessions. And then in chapter 15, there are three parables. I think you're probably familiar with them. Parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost son. And then I would suggest that this parable at the beginning of chapter 16 is just a continuation on that series of parables. Now, quickly, before we go too far, let me set the stage kind of on parables. Parables are just stories that Jesus told. They were just a teaching method that he used pretty often, and sometimes he did it to help people understand a point that he was trying to explain. The parables wouldn't necessarily have to be true stories, but they would include scenarios or situations, something that people would be familiar with. They come alongside the teaching that Jesus was doing in order to help us grasp though. That's what the word parable literally means, a placing beside, where you'd lay something beside something else so you can understand it better. And I remember this. It was funny. I saw in the news this week a story where a guy in Florida caught and killed an 18-foot, 8-inch snake. And I remember the story real well because I hate snakes. Sorry, AJ. <laughs> but, but, and I was rooting for the guy. No, I, that's not why I remember the story. I remember the story because there was a picture, there's a great picture of this 18-foot, 8-inch snake laid out, and they had three people laying down beside it, one on top of the other, kind of created this human chain. And, you know, the idea is that's helpful. Because, you know, can I really grasp how big an 18-foot, 8-inch snake is? Parables use the method of transference. It just means they transfer something from a known realm to an unknown realm so we can understand it better. So the idea of three people stacked one on top of the other helped me grasp, hey, just how big is that snake? That's what parables do as they come alongside Scripture. So in Luke chapter 15, in verses 1 and 2, we get this exchange that kind of sets the scene for these next four parables. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. This is Jesus. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble. They said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes were just no match for Jesus in the holiness department. They were no match for Jesus in their knowledge of the Bible. And so what they want to do is they want to do a little character assassination. They'd like to kill his reputation. They go, well, if he hangs out with sinners, you know, I mean, this is the, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck defense, he must be a bad guy. And so what we see is Christ's response at their attempt at this character assassination in these next four parables the three that are in Luke 15, and then our parable today. All four of those culminate in Luke chapter 16, verse 14. It says, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. Well, what were all these things? It's these four parables. In the first parable, the one of the lost sheep, Jesus is teaching that every person is precious to God. Everyone is worth saving. Now, certainly the scribes and the Pharisees didn't see that that way. They just saw people who sinned. But Jesus saw people who were in need of a savior. There's the difference. God is always more interested in people. They're always the most important thing to him. Then follows the parable of the lost coin. And Christ is showing us, we'll put a lot of effort into tasks that we see as being valuable. The woman in that story, she put a ton of effort into finding a coin, a lost coin that was worth about a day's pay. And when she did, when she found it, she rejoiced. She told all her neighbors about it. And I think Jesus is saying, hey, if we're going to rejoice and we're going to put that much effort into finding just one lost coin, then how excited should we be about finding one lost person? How excited will God be about one of his valuable children being found, and being in the kingdom? And then there's the famous story of the prodigal son. And there we learn for sure that God's desire is to be with us. He wants to be with us. And even if we turn, even after we turn and run away from him, if we'll come back, when we come back, he'll forgive us. He can and will forgive our sin. And I think in that parable, the lost son certainly represents those sinners that Jesus was being judged for hanging out with. And the older son then would represent the scribes and the Pharisees who were too caught up in their own righteousness, too pleased with their own possessions to see any value at all in a sinner coming back. And I think it's their love for righteousness, their love for possessions, being blessed by God, that leads to God telling this fourth parable. And I will admit, it's a difficult account. I think it's even a confusing account. But you know from the text, the audience, at least the scribes and the Pharisees, got it. Because of verse 14. It says, the lovers of money scoffed at Jesus. Why? Because they didn't like the teaching. See, throughout the Gospel of Luke, not just here, Jesus is building this foundation as he's training the disciples, as he's living his life in front of the Pharisees. And it's kind of summarized here in Luke 16. He's been trying to teach people to look at money, to look at material possessions a different way. He's really turning our thinking on this upside down. He's been trying to show that if we have radical faith, for genuine Christ followers, it'll change the way we look at money. And we'll change from attitude where we just want to get it and keep it to where we'll want to get it and then give it away. We won't hoard things. There should be a sense of realization for the disciples in this story. And for us today, both then and now, money can't give us the things that are most important. Money can't buy us happiness. And so we can stop trusting in money and start trusting God. We can stop serving money. We can start serving God. And I think also Jesus is painting a picture that material stuff doesn't last anyway. You can't take it with you. So the best thing you could possibly do with money is use it to produce something that will last. So with all that as a backdrop, here's the parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16. Now he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him to him and he said, what's this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Manager said, well, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I'm removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors. And he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he'd acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much? Therefore, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. So the rich man in this parable is recognized as God. And that makes sense in a lot of ways. In this story, everything belongs to him. Everything belongs to the rich man. And so the manager is supposed to oversee the rich man's stuff. And so you and me were the managers in this story. That explanation works pretty well. In the NASB, the subtitle for this passage is the unrighteous steward. Well, steward is just another word for manager. And being a good steward is a pretty good description of what we're supposed to be doing here on earth. Stewards don't own things. They just manage them. Well, in that same way, God gives us our lives to manage. But everything we have is on loan because everything we have belongs to him. And so the big point in this parable for me is, well, there's good stewards and there's bad stewards. There's righteous stewards and there's unrighteous stewards. We're all managers. So the question is, which category do we fall into? Are we good or bad? With all the blessings that God has given us because everything we have comes from him, are we being good managers or bad managers? If we walk in Christ, if we profess faith in Christ, then for sure we all have at least one spiritual gift. I sadly am envious sometimes. I know some of you have more than one. But for sure you get one. And the idea is, are we using it in a way that Scripture tells us we're supposed to, where it would bring glory to God and it would build up the body? 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10 reads this way. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. I think the assumption is, I know it is for me, sometimes you read the Bible and you see these stories, and so any steward, any manager, any servant that we see who's been given a trust by his master or lord or rich man, whatever we look, we go, oh, well, they're going to be faithful. They'll certainly be faithful and they'll provide a good example. But that's not the case here. If you read the Bible, it's not the case in several other passages as well. This parable gives us a positive example for the disciples, by application for us, from a negative example. Jesus shows, hey, there's things that even blatant sinners do that you can learn from. Now, most of the time, it's what not to do, but here in this story, I think we learn something that we are to do. I mean, I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hands here. That'd get kind of embarrassing, but what if I came and asked, hey, are you always a good steward at your job? Because if, you, if you're going to answer that question, you've got to come and ask some follow-up questions. Say, so, hey, you know, have you ever wasted any time on your job? Have you ever taken any time that could have been used for profitability, for productivity, and wasted it? If your boss came up to you and said, you're fired, would you be able to make a good defense? Or would you say, hey, thanks for letting me download all that free stuff on the Internet. I appreciate that. I sure did enjoy surfing Facebook while I was there at work. Thanks. Played some great games of solitaire on company time. I also ran a lot of errands with the company car, used their gas. Is that okay? You know, Even if it's just one time, I've read studies on this that show one time a year, there's billions of dollars in lost productivity in the U.S. economy. It's in March, right around the time of the NCAA basketball tournament. You guys probably don't know this, but I, I don't know if you're aware, on the first weekend of the tournament, on that Thursday and Friday, they show games during the day like during work hours. You guys probably didn't know that. The studies alone are staggering. They show billions of dollars of lost productivity. What if we were being called out on how good of managers we are of those kind of resources? Just like the guy in the parable, I think we've probably all been bad managers at some point in time. Now, not to this extent, but what happens is this guy gets found out. He gets called out publicly. What if that happened to me? What if the elders came to me and said, uh, listen, James, we have a tracker on your computer, and I know you preached that first week in the NCAA tournament, but, you know, we saw that you had that little picture-in-picture thing going on on your computer. I feel actually pretty good about confessing that. <laughs> Got that off my chest now. <laughs> but, you know, what if they did? What if they came and busted me on that? You know, the idea is it's true. You come back to the text, and the story says there's a rich man, and he's so rich that he has a money manager got to be like his, his bookkeeper or his bill payer. But also, more than that, he's his financial planner. He's supposed to be the guy who's making sure there's a good return on the investment. He's supposed to make the rich guy more money. He's certainly not supposed to lose the money. And it turns out this guy is squandering his stuff. Well, all of a sudden, the rich man hears about it, that his financial planner's not doing a good job. And it doesn't say exactly what he's doing, you know, but it's worthy of getting the boot. And so he comes to him and he says, hey, before I fire you, You're going to get a little time. This may be like a two-week notice or something, I guess. And what I want you to do is get the books in order because we're going to have an audit. I want to really get to the bottom of what's going on with my finances. And so the bad manager is called out, and he's in trouble. He knows he's been checking his Facebook way too much at work. He's been unrighteous. He hadn't been a good steward. And he realizes he's going to get let go, but then it gets worse than that. It kind of dawns on him, hey, once I get fired... I'm not going to be able to get another financial planner's job because they're going to call my boss and ask for a reference, and that's not going to go well. And so he starts to, to look at himself, and he takes a little personal inventory because he's assessing his other options for employment. And he realizes, hey, I don't really want to work that hard. and I've become a little lazy, and I, I certainly am too old or not strong enough to go dig. I'm not going to become a manual laborer. I'm too proud to beg. And so he's stuck, and he's trying to come up with something that's going to provide for him after his management position is taken away. And then it hits him. He has this really shrewd, really wicked, really clever idea, kind of like Squints did with Wendy Peppercorn. He says, hey, since I'm still employed by my boss, the rich man, I can legally represent him in business transactions. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get on the phone and I'm going to call some people who owe him money, and I'm going to start handing out discounts. Now, sure, this is going to give my boss a beating. He's going to take just a financial beating here, but I bet I'm going to make some really good friends out of this. And then when I get done, one of these people is going to offer me a job, so I won't have to dig or beg. Being forewarned that he's going to lose his job, he has to prepare for this audit, the bad guy does something really, really smart for himself. And this part is important. He brilliantly provides for himself by using the rich guy's stuff. He's canceling debt, but it's not his debt because it's not his stuff. And it's not easy to say exactly how much money this is because the parable deals with commodities. But I read one commentary. It suggested that the 50% discount he offered to that first guy would have represented like saving a year's wages. Let's put it in today's money and say it's $50,000. Can we wrap our mind around that one? What if you owed $100,000 on a credit card. I pray you don't. What if you did and somebody called you and said, hey, it's your lucky day. Let's cut that bill in half. What would you say? I guarantee the first thing you'd say is, who is this? (laughs) Do you have the authority to make this kind of deal? The guy in the other, oh, yeah, this is Bob. You know me, Bob, remember? I'm the boss's right-hand man, Bob. Remember that name because, oh, by the way, I'm looking for a job. You mind if I give you a copy of my resume? That's what this guy is doing. And so in the parable, it indicates that the master, the rich man, was impressed with how shrewd this unrighteous steward was. You have to wonder if this guy had ever shown this kind of ambition, this kind of creativity, he wouldn't be in this spot. But he is, now he's in a pinch, and even though he's a dishonest guy, even though he's a bad financial planner, he comes up with a shrewd idea. And it's so shrewd and so wicked and so clever that even though the rich man is losing money on the deal he's impressed. It's like Wendy Peffercorn when Squints leaves and she stands at the fence and waves at him. Because she's impressed at how gutsy he was. What a great plan he came up with. But this is where the tension exists. It's right here in verse 8. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. That creates some tension for me, doesn't it for you? Hey, my disciples, look at this guy. Look at this bad manager. There's an important lesson you can learn. I believe the rest of the parable from the end of verse 8 all the way through to verse 13 is the application part because this is where we're going to learn why we want to pay attention to what this shrewd and dishonest guy did because the end of verse 8 says this, For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Jesus is saying, what if my people, here he calls them the sons of light, what if my people were as shrewd for the kingdom of God as the sons of the age? And I think he's trying to draw a, a real clear distinction between the dishonest manager and his disciples. But he's saying, what if my people were as shrewd for the kingdom of God as crooks are in this world? A lot of Jesus' parables make their point through similarity. You've read those before. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, verse 47, Matthew chapter 20, verse 1 tells us what the kingdom of heaven is like. It says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field. kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet in the sea. kingdom of heaven is like a landowner going out to hire laborers. And we get this idea of what the kingdom of heaven is like through similarity. But not all parables teach that way. Some teach through contrast, like this one. There's a great parable in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 12 where the guy's invited to a wedding banquet and he's thrown out for not wearing the right clothes. And so by contrast, we're supposed to get, hey, don't be like that guy. And that's what we get here in this parable. It makes its point by contrast. And the master is praised, or pardon me, the bad manager is praised for his shrewdness. And then Jesus intentionally teaches disciples, hey, pay attention. You don't want to be like that guy, except for in this one area. Jesus never praises the dishonesty. He never praises the unrighteousness in this bad manager. That would be ridiculous. But Jesus does teach the disciples, and I think he's teaching us also, Please learn a very important lesson from this story. If the people of this world, the sons of this age, are so shrewd in trying to attain a future that won't last, I mean, that's all this guy was trying to do was get his next job, provide for himself in this very, very finite world. He's saying, if that's the case, how come my people can't be more shrewd in trying to secure an eternal future, an infinite future that will last forever? There are notions in Scripture, I think, about leveraging culture, especially to be able to reach out to unbelievers. And I believe that's a wise thing to do. I think you've got to be really, really careful because that's a very slippery slope. But I think that's wise. But that's not what this passage is about. It's not about leveraging culture. This passage is about money, about stewardship. It's about God's riches and how believers in Christ, people who have a relationship with God that's by grace through faith, are supposed to manage those resources. And so the first application point is in verse 9. It says, And I say to you, Make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Here's your first application point. Make friends through wealth. Use money to win people into God's kingdom. Does that sound right? Use the money God gives us to manage to love people, to show Jesus to people. It's saying spend money. So that people will be your friend. I'm telling you, this is a complicated passage. <laughs> but but the, the reality is this works, doesn't it? Have you ever met somebody who's like real lonely and, and you say to somebody, hey, why is that person so lonely? And they go, oh, it's because they're so generous. They're just so giving. Nobody likes that kind of person. Nobody wants to be around them. Nobody says that, do they? We understand that. That doesn't turn people off. That's attractive. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. Don't say, well, I went to church and Pastor James said get a lot of money. I'm not saying be greedy. I'm not saying be dishonest. I'm saying what this passage is saying. Be a good manager of God's resources. Be a shrewd steward. And if you're blessed with a lot of money, understand something. <laughs> Realize that it may not be to augment your standard of living. Quite possibly, it would make a lot of sense. It could be that it's to augment your standard of giving. You're supposed to be more generous. Maybe you're being blessed so you can bless more people. Be more friendly. I'll tell you a true story. I had this happen to me just a couple months ago. I'm also the pastor over at the roads across the street. If you didn't know that. We're kind of part-time over there. And uh, and so I really I'm in there a lot with my love of Diet Coke and I, and I get opportunities to to witness over there and there was this guy who was working there and he was just the friendliest guy. Just a super friendly guy. And so I enjoyed talking to him, but, but any time I'd try and steer the conversation to something about God or, or a spiritual thing, he'd kind of shut down on me. I really liked the guy. I invited him to dinner. I invited him to go play golf with me, but I, just, I couldn't break through. One day I was going to go to lunch with somebody here from the church, and we were going to go to Buffalo Wild Wings, and I was on my way over there. And I got a call, and he got called away if something would work, and he couldn't go. So I was already on my way there, and I had a, a good book with me, and I thought, well, I'll just go. It's not a big deal. And so I went in, and I sat down, and wouldn't you know, this kid who works at the roads also works part-time at Buffalo Wild Wings, and he also happened to be the waiter in the section where I was sitting, and he also happened to have just gotten suspended from work at Buffalo Wild Wings. I guess they do this deal where they have, like, promotions or whatever, and you're supposed to mention the promotion, and he had, like, a secret shopper person, and he didn't mention the promotion, and he got suspended for two days from his job, and it was a real crush for him because he was struggling financially. He was in a spot where he was really counting on the money. And so I asked him, you know, as I got my meal, hey, can I pray for you about anything? And he spills all this stuff. And so I eat my lunch, and I'm sitting there thinking, what can I do? What can I do to bless this guy? I've already been trying to reach out to him. He won't do anything. And so I got my bill, you know, seven bucks or whatever, and I filled out my credit card thing, and I, I made it $50. I gave him a big tip. Seemed like that was the thing I could do at the time. And he was blown away by it. And he came and he sat and talked with me. And I said, hey, dude, I've been wanting to go hang out with you. Would you go play golf for like that? He's like, yeah, I'll go. You know, he went and played golf with me. I had to pay for that too, come think of it. (laughs) Just dawned on me. (laughs) But, but, But in that, I got to hang out with him and I had a couple hours and I presented the gospel to him. And it was all these incredible things. And I think this passage is saying that. Use God's resources wisely. Use God's resources to make friends. And also, something really important you don't want to miss here, understand that wealth will fail. We get that, don't we? We understand that wealth isn't going to last. For lots of folks, wealth fails in this life. But for sure, for everyone, it fails at the end of this life. You've heard that phrase, I know you can't take it with you. It's true regarding wealth, it really is. So use God's resources to make friends. (laughs) Because when our stewardship is finished on this earth, we're going to have to leave all the stuff behind. But here's something that really is incredible. You know the one thing you can take with you? I guess it'd be more correct to say one thing you can send ahead. It's people. It's people that God will have used you to introduce them to Jesus. He does the drawing to himself, but what if he uses you and you introduce somebody to Jesus? People are always the key. If we're able to be used by God to introduce people to Jesus and those folks accept Christ, they're going to spend forever in eternity with God, and with us, if we're believers. Use God's money to support your church, to support organizations that are reaching out to unreached people groups, to support organizations that are going to lost and broken people. Use God's money to bless the single mom who lives in your neighborhood. Can you imagine what would happen if you'd use God's money and you'd buy some groceries for her, or you'd buy a coat for a kid, and she'd come and say, why would you do that? And you'd be able to say, you know, my God is a loving and gracious God. And he didn't just bless me to bless me. He, he wants me to be a blessing to people, he wants to bless people through me. If you said that, don't you know that'd prompt some kind of follow-up question, who is your God? And then you'd be able to tell the same story that I was able to tell my buddy out on the golf course about Jesus. Don't you know that's how that would work? And I got to do that because I used $43 of God's money. And it bought me some time to share the gospel. Do You know why Jesus talks so much about money in the Bible? I think it's because he desperately is trying to teach us that money is a great tool. and It's a horrible God. It can be an incredible tool to help spread the gospel. When you support missionaries, it can be an incredible tool to tangibly serve. If you buy somebody a coat, but it's a horrible, false God. Here in Luke 16, we're being taught, be a shrewd manager. Be like the dishonest guy was in the parable in trying to secure his future. But understand that if we're Christ followers, we're trying to secure an eternal future for people. There's a great summary of this concept. Paul basically preaches my sermon right here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and verses 17 to 19. Check this out if you haven't seen this. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves money? No. (laughs) The treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Money and possessions are going to fail us in this life. So we need to learn to be shrewd with whatever resources God chooses to bless us with. We need to use money to make friends and to win those friends to God. Here's your second application point in verses 10 through 12. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? If you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Here's a second point. The little things are a proving ground. God's watching to see what we're going to do with the little things that he provides for us in our lives to see if we're faithful enough to handle more important things. I mean, believe it or not, there are a lot more important things in this world than money. Wealth is here today and gone tomorrow we haven't proved ourselves faithful with those kind of things, who's going to trust us with things that are really valuable, like eternity? If we can't manage someone else's money, where we know there might be an audit, where we know there's accountability, there's checks and balances, how will we be trusted to be good managers of our own things? This is a common practice in the world we live in today, right? You know, you understand this. You don't graduate college and become CEO. You graduate college and you get an entry-level job. And if you're faithful in that entry-level job, you work your way up the ladder. Well, what's happening in all that is your boss is checking out to see, can I trust them? Can they be faithful in these little things? There's a reason we do this, and it's honestly because zebras don't change their stripes. People tend to behave the same whether they have a little or whether they have a lot. If you're the kind of person who's going to pad your expense account, or you're going to dip into the cash register, if you can't show restraint in those small areas then you certainly won't have restraint if you have the opportunity to steal a fortune. And your boss wants to learn that about you before they hand over a lot of responsibility, before they hand over the reins. And this begs the question, if we're not good stewards of what God has graciously given us, of what he's loaned us, if we can't make profitable use of our borrowed lives here on earth, then why, apart from God's grace, thank you, Lord, why would we inherit eternal life? I think this is all convicting. This is all compelling. And I think verses 10 to 12 set the stage for this last application point in verse 13 because this is really showing this entire issue, talking about stewardship here, talking about our lives, the ones God has loaned to us. Everything is about worship. It's about our response to who God is, to who he says he is in his word, the things he's done, the things we're going to see him do. It's about worship. Verse 13 reads this. No servant can serve two masters, for he'll either hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. That's worship language. You cannot serve God and wealth. It's your last application point. You can't serve both God and wealth. We can't serve both God and money. We have to make a choice. We're either going to worship one or we're going to worship the other. Is it going to be a true God or is it going to be a false God? Mark Driscoll's pastor of Mars Hill Church in Seattle. He wrote a neat book called Doctrines, and it breaks down a lot of great Christian doctrine. He's got a chapter on stewardship. And I stole this line. I think it's the great thing. Regarding currency, our U.S. currency. He says on our money, it says, In God we trust. But the way we tend to value it, it should say, In this God we trust. As Christ's followers, we're called to serve. We're called to use the gifts God's given us and to be good managers of his resources. And so to do that, we have to choose. We serve God or we serve money. (laughs) Let me just remind you, money is a great tool. It's a horrible God. In context, all this teaching is for the disciples, and then it's aimed at the Pharisees and the scribes, but they scoffed at it and they rejected it because they'd become so consumed with their righteousness and with the material possessions they had. They were confident that because they had those things, they were being blessed by God. You can get off base here. There are actually two camps, two views kind of areas. As Christ followers, we can get really off base in this area. And they're kind of the polar extremes of being a good steward. And it's you can follow a prosperity theology or you can follow a poverty theology. Neither one's correct. Prosperity theology points to people in the Bible and says, hey, see, they love God and they serve God and they became rich. Abraham, he became rich. David, he became rich. Solomon, he became the richest guy ever. And so that's the idea. that The holier you become, the more wealth you'll have. That's what God wants. Now, ignore for a moment, if you can. I hope you can't. But ignore the fact that that's not taught anywhere in the Bible. You can take some passages and really pull them out of context and try and get there. But that's not what's taught in the Bible. But ignore that for a second and think, man, that must sound really attractive. That would sound really attractive to folks who are in financial trials, folks who are having all kinds of financial difficulty. That would sound good. And you know where else this sounds really attractive, and it's just sad. It's a shame. but Because there are so many folks who are doing a wonderful job of presenting the authentic gospel, of really presenting who Christ is. But in developing nations, there are people who are seeing this prosperity theology. And compared to them, every American is wealthy. They're getting this idea, hey, if I become a Christian, I'll be wealthy like the Americans. It's just devastating. It's It's sad how the God of the universe, the God of reconciliation, the God of love and justice and grace and peace is being presented somewhere around the world. Here's the bottom line on this. I hate to be a bottom line guy, but I want to be so clear. Prosperity theology is not about loving God. It's about using God to get to what you really love, which is money. This passage clearly refutes that idea. Jesus is saying you can't serve both. You've got to choose. God may increase our wealth. I know folks who are, who are financially well off, and they are incredibly giving and generous. And they are funding so many incredible missions organizations and supporting their church. It's fantastic. Remember, the idea is if God does provide for you financially, I really doubt it's to make us fat and happy. I really doubt it's to make us comfortable and closed off from the world. I think it's got to be much more about augmenting our standard of giving than our standard of living. He wants us to use money to lead people towards a relationship with him. We can't save them, and certainly the money can't save them. but can we be good stewards? Use the money to lead people towards him. Because if we can be faithful with those little things, we can be trusted in much. Quickly, just as we close, I want to say, it can lead you to go to the other way can start to embrace a poverty gospel and on the surface it's pretty easy to stretch the bible to get there too we quote the apostle paul in first timothy chapter 6 and verse 10 where he says for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs and we read that and we just leave a few words out we leave out the love of money and we just go straight to well hey money is the root of all evil So poverty theologians say, well, I I don't even want any. Money's bad. And they support that with some correct theology. Be content with what you have. That's correct. Don't covet. Those things are correct. But the idea is if if you go straight to the money is bad trail, then what do you do with a passage like this one in Luke where it says, be a good steward. Use money shrewdly. Here's the deal. We're not any closer to God if we have a lot of stuff. And we're not any closer to God if we don't have any stuff. You can't get closer to God than the grace of Jesus Christ. You just can't. It's never going to be about what we have or what we don't have. It's always going to be about who he is. Prosperity theology, I guarantee, can sound really good to unbelievers. I think poverty theology can sound really spiritual to believers, but neither one of them is correct. Neither one of them is accurate scripturally. You know what is accurate scripturally from our text? Be a good steward. Use the money God has trusted us with wisely. Can I get a little bold with you as we close? I think most of us in this room today are average Americans. A lot of us live paycheck to paycheck, maybe paycheck and a half. And I understand there'll be folks on both ends of this extreme. I guarantee there are folks here who are struggling to make ends meet. And I guarantee there are folks here who could skip a few paychecks and not miss a beat. But the question for the application is the same. In this present age, are we being good stewards of the money God gives us to manage? Now hear me on this. We haven't talked at all today about how you provide for your family, about how you meet your needs. That has to be a priority and we haven't talked intentionally about any specific ministries you're supposed to support, I, I, I just pray that you would pray about what you're supposed to do with that. And if you're going to give to an organization, pray and evaluate it. Evaluate that organization. See if they're good stewards. But if you do all those things, if you go through all those steps, and at the end you come to this idea and you say, well, I can't afford to give to the church or to missions. I can't afford to give to my unbelieving neighbor because I'm barely squeaking by. And the question is, what do you think you'll give if you ever get ahead? I hear people say this, boy, if I win the lottery, I'd be so generous. I'd support this and I'd support that. I'm not trying to be mean, but I'm just saying, if you're not already doing that, you're not going to do it if you win the lottery. He who is faithful in little things will be faithful in much. Maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum. And maybe you're not living paycheck to paycheck. And maybe you've caught yourself saying this before. Hey, there's going to be a lot of time for me to support the church or support missions or whatever. As soon as I pay off my student loan. As soon as I replace that whatever needs replacing. As soon as I build up a nest egg of some kind. And hear me on this. Those may be the priorities that God has you working on to be a good steward. Your stewardship is between you and God, not you and me. Those might be the priorities. But but I think this passage is imploring us to always think about a vision for the future. Always be thinking about the one thing we can take to heaven with us. That's the people we help introduce to Jesus. That's our question as we leave here today and go out into our mission field. Will we be good stewards? What will we do with this life that God has loaned us? He desires for us to manage well. Let me pray. Daddy, we come humbly, and we want to be good stewards. And we read your word, and we want to be obedient to do what it says. And God, we need you so desperately. As you were teaching the disciples and the Pharisees, as you're teaching us today, God, help us to embrace how we're supposed to use your resources for your glory how we can make a difference in people's lives because of the way you bless. It's nothing about us. It's all about you. God, help us to be good stewards. As we leave here today, help us to understand that truly everything we have comes from you. We love you so much, God. We give our lives, we give our worship to you. I ask all those things in Jesus' name. Amen.